Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Roland Sibling, the Chief Scale Up Ally, coach and advisor at Scale Up Allies. Roland, welcome to the show. Good you, Mike, and thank you for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show and especially for uh, hosting uh, a peer and someone that I really admire and you are doing an amazing job and it's always very good to, to learn from you and I'm sure that the community will benefit uh, a lot from your um, lessons and hard learned lessons uh, during this next 25-30 minutes. So let's Appreciate start to get... the invitation Mike, really a pleasure to be here. Likewise. And um, let, let's get started by getting to know more about yourself. And, mm -hmm. um, and so feel free to give us an introduction uh, about what you are doing and, and who you are. Okay, so yeah, um, I uh, was born in the Netherlands and uh, had a, a bit of a career in different countries. I studied in Belgium and uh, was very early on in the early internet days, uh, teaching the very first internet course in European University back in 1992. And uh, this basically led to a career in fast growing companies. And so uh, I've been very lucky to three times in my life have gone through an amazing scale up journey with a company that grew from about 10 to about a thousand employees in less than three years. Wow. The first was in the 1990s in Belgium, that was Telenet, a new telecom company where we rolled out broadband internet to consumers as the very first company in Europe already back in 1996. The second was Bluewin in uh, Switzerland, that was also an internet provider, but on the incumbent side. And that was right after the dot-com bubble burst. So they had already gone through a huge growth, but now it was a matter of optimizing it and focusing on the real value and uh, you know, not to spend too much time on projects that weren't gonna go anywhere. So uh, not less fun work maybe, but still also very important in bringing companies to maturity. And the third one was uh, after I had started my own startup, brought that to Silicon Valley, I joined Rocket Fuel, which was uh, one of the first companies that started applying artificial intelligence to the placement of advertising. So to get the right ad in front of the right eyeballs in the right context and at the right time. That was also an amazing growth story founded in 2008 and, you know, like having grown to probably 1300 people by 2013 had done an IPO. And then also the aftermath of that, like what happens after you go to the uh, public markets, how do you have to adapt to the new reality? And what happens if they don't like you anymore? So, you know, it's not always the good side. It's also the bad side. But to make a long story short, I think I really had an experience there that's pretty unique in the world, where it's probably the only one that has been in three successful scale-up journeys like that on the inside, not just as an investor or a board member, but actually as an operator. And the other thing I noticed is that even in my 20s in the first company, I always felt drawn to... Uh, having a relationship with the CEO, kind of coaching them through what is such a lonely job at the top. Um, and that coaching always keep, kept uh, coming back to how can we keep this energy, this startup zeal alive, while at the same time building more robustness, um, making it less fragile, 
um, you know, basically becoming a more adult company. And so I started to realize that lots of the advice that uh, we were giving CEOs at that time was, you know, just grow up, just become like a big company, like an AT&T or an IBM or <laughs> something like that. And that advice almost always completely failed. Why? Because it's a little bit like telling a teenager to behave like a 50-year-old. <laughs> a teenager, of course, needs to grow up and start learning about the world. And, you know, especially when they become a college student, they need to, you know, stand on their own feet to some degree. But still, not in the same way that a 50-year-old does it. It's more about that intermediate phase of, yes, exactly. learning to savior your independence, doing more things by yourself, counting less on the total support of your parents, but at the same time still being open to exploring what you're best at, uh, being cool, being innovative. And I see, really see a parallel with uh, scale-up companies, as we call them, so the ones that are beyond the pure startup stage, but are not yet at a stage of maturity where really the only concern is to satisfy the investors in the stock market. There's this middle phase, I think I have a new, unique experience with that. And that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. That's really amazing and really inspiring. I, I love the way uh, you frame it, uh, scaling up without becoming uh, corporates. And I think that mm -hmm. any entrepreneur also ate, uh, one of the most important values of any entrepreneur is freedom. And in a certain mm -hmm. moment when we are scaling up, uh, it seems it is a prison. <laughs> so <and laughs> if it becomes too corporate, so it seems that those entrepreneurs want to go away very quick uh, instead of keeping uh, scaling the company, right? Yeah, it's a very good point. I like that analogy that some entrepreneurs consider the scaling phase uh, a prison. Um, I do think there's um, something around discipline, which is something you also mentioned to me a lot, right? You know, every entrepreneur needs to become uh, more disciplined, especially in the execution side of the business. Absolutely. And that can feel like a prison, but it is also, I think, true that you cannot hope to keep uh, you know, running a lab essentially of all kinds of experiments at like an early startup stage. Um, exactly. You can personally, but then you have to move to a new startup all the time. Uh, once the startup has found something that works, the challenge now becomes how can we make that work everywhere and for everyone or for as many customers as possible and not just, oh, we found something, now let's look for the next thing. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's a very important point that we see again and again. It's a very strong pattern. So, and you have launched different books and you mm -hmm. also have a new book, which is a, a perfect book for the, the, the season or the pandemic crisis that we are all facing, a new crisis. So leading your startup through crisis. Can you let us know a little bit more uh, about the new book? And, um, and how it can help entrepreneurs yes, of and, course. and CEOs facing. Yeah, and, and that's really the, the point uh, why we wrote this book, because so many founders suddenly needed a lot of help. I had people contact me from all over the world. People were so worried about their survival of their startup, whether they were doing the right thing for their people, for their customers, for their investors. And often, especially younger founders, had not gone through any economic crisis in their lives yet. So it was often a matter of not even knowing where to start. 
And so what we try to do is to give real practical advice on a, almost on a day-by-day -day basis. Okay, start here, start communicating every day, start setting up a crisis team, things like that. And so the framework we developed is meant to be hugely practical for founders. Uh, we just stuck with the words, the crisis acronym. And the six steps that I identified is um, communicate daily, reassess reality, instruct your people, sustain your future, inspire positive action, and spot new opportunities. And think of this as kind of like a waterfall. It's the step you can do step by step as a leadership team. Not every step is going to be very easy, of course, but it is what you need to do in order to keep your startup alive and have a hope to, at some point in time, return money to investors again. That's great. Is, um, I know that you have some articles uh, about uh, the framework and also your own podcast where you been, have been covering each of <laughs> the steps of the methodology. Uh, it's the pleasure to, to listen to that. It's really good. Do you want to share any source or uh, any place that uh, the, the scale-ups that are listening us, scale-up leaders that are listening us might check out and go yeah, deeper? So the the podcast and the blog post uh, you can think of as beta versions of what's going to be in the book. And those beta versions are available on our website, scaleupallies.com. And um, the book itself is now in preprint. It'll be out in Amazon at the end of the month, June 2020. So by that time, I hope to see uh, people uh, getting a lot of help from this book. And of course, if there's any questions, they can always be in touch. Strongly recommend it and uh, congrats, uh, Roland, for helping the community and for launching this book in such a timely uh, moment for uh, all of us. Thank so you. let's go for the three critical ingredients that we always discuss uh, on mm -hmm. the show. And we invite you to challenge those ingredients and even iterate on them and pivot okay. some of them. So number one, radical focus. Number two, world class world-class leadership slash team and number three culture of execution so starting with number one radical focus there is something that you talk a lot related with be niche be rich and it's a lot about market penetration and market share in a specific niche in a specific segment mm -hmm. and you also have written uh, several times about the topic and i would love you to explain to the founders and, and ceos out there how they can keep the focus uh, and how they can master a niche without uh, getting too distracted around different niches that will make it more difficult to scale up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think um, this is probably the biggest paradox in the development of a startup, then scale up, then mature company that people think as you grow, you obviously need to spread your wings. You need to start covering more products, more segments, and I think that's actually not entirely true. The way I think about it is there's an exploring phase in the early life stage of the company when you're a truly still a startup. So you're still looking for the right product market fit, but maybe also product channel fit, um, founder market fit, all these different fits that really need right. to fall in place for it to become a successful model that you say, okay, now we can start scaling it. It's at that point of starting to scale it that paradoxically 
you really need to start homing in on that very core. Like what is the exact combination of the product, the markets, the founder competences, and the channel that we can exploit as much as possible. So you move from exploring to exploiting. And it's only after you get to a a pretty dominant market share in that very core market, in that niche, as you call it, uh, Mike, that I would say now you can open the gates to exploring again. And so paradoxically, many mature companies actually have as their big remit to explore more and to you know, be more innovative. Whereas when you're in the middle of this scale-up phase, you're right in front of this big opportunity, but sometimes it's hard. And the reality is that many founders say, oh, it's too hard, let's keep exploring. But no, it's actually leaning in and making sure you actually grab that opportunity, grab it by the horns, grab it by the tail, wherever you want to grab it, but it's your opportunity and you cannot let it go, right? So the paradox is really move to exploiting in that scale-up phase, grab that market that's there for the taking for you before anyone else does, and only afterwards start exploring more to add the complexity, add second product lines, add more geography, whatever you need to add in order to, um, to add to your growth. One, one thing I often notice with when talking to founders who are maybe by nature more explorers than exploiters, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. They will say, no, but I need uh, this international expansion and I need these three more product lines because of the growth numbers I need to reach. And then I will ask, so what's your market share in your core? And they say, oh, I don't know how big it is. Okay, let's estimate. Okay, so let's say that market is about um, maybe a thousand customers. And I ask them, how many do you have now? Well, 15. So I'm like, well, then your problem is not that you need other growth avenues. Your problem is penetration. <laughs> exactly. And that, I think, is, is something that many, many founders struggle with. I think because they expect life to be easier after product market fit, that if it doesn't all go naturally without much effort, they think they haven't reached their product market fit yet, so they keep exploring. And there is a bit of a pernicious influence, I would say, from all the press around Silicon Valley and the huge companies, um, Facebook, Google, Dropbox, Airbnb, all those uh, amazing stories. The PR people around that make it seem as if everything was just natural, as if (laughs) there was no challenge. Whereas if you really listen to some of the podcasts with those founders or you, um, you have an opportunity to talk to people who were there early, all of those companies also went through these really, really hard problems. But the difference is they stuck with it. They made sure that they conquered it. And that's what brought them to really owning that whole market. That's, that's, that's really very, it's very, very good point that again, we need to repeat again and again and again, namely the shiny uh, object syndrome or the superhero syndrome uh, that you keep attacking everything that moves instead of saying no and no and no. And if we look to any successful founder or CEO, if we think about Jeff Bezos, he would say that uh, even Steve Jobs, right? He would say that he was successful for the things he said no to, not by the things he said yes um, to and staying 
solving the same problem, focusing on the same niche for a decade uh, might help you to get there quicker than keep changing every single um, 13 weeks. <laughs> Absolutely right. I think Steve Jobs is the best example of someone who focused enormously, even when Apple was already a big, uh, a huge company. Um, I think Amazon, uh, some people could interpret it differently in the sense that they've, of course, expanded their core book business to many, many other areas. Correct. Yeah. But it still is the very same model of being this key intermediary between the masses and uh, producers of goods, just like any retail company is. And I think they're supremely focused on that, potentially with the exception of um, Amazon Web Services, which is, of course, a whole separate business, but there's other synergy reasons for that. Uh, still, I would not advise early stage founders or people who've just gone into scale-up mode to start thinking of building up that second or third uh, leg of the business already at that stage, because, you know, some of the clients I'm talking to right now, they uh, were working on the second or the third leg. And all they hear from their investors is, why would I invest in that if you haven't even been able to optimize your first leg yet? Exactly. Optimize that one first, get a dominant position so that you can generate cash, and then you can actually fund the other businesses. Uh, and to your point, Mike, if you value freedom as an entrepreneur, the less investments you need to accept, the better. <laughs> love it. Very good incentive. Uh, I love it the way you, you made the articulation of the position of the pitch to, to the scale of founder. And going to number two, world-class leadership slash mm -hmm. um, team. So we were all prepared for uh, normal 2020. Uh, all of those scale-ups are trying to double uh, their revenues every single year to have an amazing uh, net revenue retention ratio as well. And uh, COVID-19 uh, happened from one day to, to another. So uh, we have this famous article of Ben Arovitz about being a wartime CEO and the peacetime uh, mm -hmm. CEO. Uh, how, how, how do you uh, help those CEOs to adapt to the new times and to be prepared? I know that your book is uh, also an answer to that, but mm -hmm. what would you highlight on your crisis framework to help founders uh, stay strong and amazing pillars of strength during a crisis? Yeah, I, it's a very good question. I mean, there's a number of different ways in which you can help founders. Um, providing them with the right questions is often more important than providing them with the right answers. My understanding when I'm working with the scale-up is almost always you have all the answers you need. It's just that you don't know what questions to ask <laughs> yourself. And that's, I think, where we as coaches or thought leaders or authors or speakers can really help people. Even if we don't work with them directly and they just come to a lecture or they read a book, it's asking those right questions and let people come up with the right answers. Um, so that's a big theme, I would say. Um, the second is to uh, really serve as that um, reality check, if you will, to confirm that the reality has changed and to keep challenging is every assumption in your business plan, the things you've counted on for years, still valid? For example, you have developed a certain software to serve a cer certain market segment for a certain value proposition. 
Is that market segment still there? Do they still have money to spend? Is that value still what they're going for? An example is uh, software to help people sell more, right? So there's a lot of CRM mm -hmm. software or, um, you know, called outreach software or all that other, um, uh, this, this is a big market. Um, yet the modus at most companies right now is not just how can we get to growth, the modus is how can we actually survive? And so the key question is more, how can we save costs? At that stage, um, a company that just sells growth software is going to have a hard time. And it may be just a matter of survival or sticking with current customers until they can see big growth for their own software again. The ones that are much more successful are the ones that are able to pivot their value proposition to uh, align with the new atmosphere, the new thinking in these companies. You know, that it doesn't sound like tone deaf, but they're able to um, switch their value proposition to what companies need right now. Love it. So very, very, very good points. And um, and in terms of um, so we 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 like and I, I really love the book, the five dysfunctions of a team of mm -hmm. Patrick Lencioni, and I really believe about having the right people on the right seats for each stage of growth, and also the right machine for each stage, uh, the right framework for each stage of growth. And there is a certain time, especially in the scale up where everything is, the systems are breaking uh, every single uh, quarter at least, um, that it's very easy to start the figure, figure pointing or the blaming uh, game saying, oh, we are not scaling because this is a marketing problem. So we have the wrong marketing team or you are mm -hmm. not doing your job or it's because the sales guys don't know how to do it and, uh, and we have the, the wrong VP of sales, uh, or it is because products, products, so we, we, we are generating leads, so we can't convert because product is not the best one, or it is CS, so we are attracting clients, but mm -hmm. then we can't upsell to those clients. So there is a lot of figure pointing and, and, and blaming and building those high performing teams so they feel that they are working on, this, on the same direction and they have accountability to each other, not accountability to the boss. Uh, it's really important. Mm -hmm. and sometimes it is even the CEO with uh, making some politics and is working with each of their executives. So, and, and they are fighting each other instead of working um, together mm -hmm. and being the facilitator of the team. So how, how do we help as coaches build high performing teams? And, and you, we, we have both discussed it a lot of times about the book, The Trillion Dollar Coach, which talks exactly a lot um, about that. So what is your take on our role of building that high performing team and, and making them more together, more focused? Yeah, so I think, uh, th thank you, it's a very good question. I think where, um, especially in a fast growing startup where almost nothing is stable and you know people need to stretch themselves all the time, it is really important to realize that people's primary responsibility is not to the functional team that they lead. The primary responsibility is to the executive team that they're a part of, right? And that's almost always something I say in the very first workshop with a scale-up. You know, of course you're there because you are representing the team, but the key leadership responsibility you have is to work together jointly on building that value that the company at large provides. And the question like which the department is not doing their job is usually completely wrong because it's not about 
improving each department. That's usually something that a scale-up has already gotten good at um, in the first stages of its growth. As soon as exactly. they could hire a few more people, then you know, sales starts running, marketing starts running, product starts running. What's the problem? They're not running together. Each are running in their own direction and nobody is there essentially only waiting for the CEO to coordinate and the CEO therefore gets completely overwhelmed. So that's the key message in the beginning. We are running this company together as a team. It's not just the CEO. We have together to make sure that there's value being provided across functions. A cross-functional team is really important. And then in all openness, we can, of course, discuss, well, where does it break down today? Is it because we are selling a lot, but we have no people to follow up? Is that a customer service problem? Maybe, but is it that they can solve it by themselves? Probably not, because it may have to do with resources, or it may have to do with salespeople documenting properly what they actually sold, you know, so that they're not just throwing garbage over the wall, very common problem. Um, or between products and engineering, you know, are we feeling that we're not as innovative as we used to be? Why is that? It's because we want to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Whereas in the past, we would just launch something and see if it would stick. You know, um, who is responsible for saying what we're actually building? Um, who is responsible for making sure that that actually gets to the market? Is that coordinated or is it all in silos and people are not setting up that cross-functional collaboration. Cross-functional, I think, is the most um, important axis on which to add value in this mid-stage growth of a startup. And that's why I also do not believe in the kinds of executive coaches who focus only on the CEO and expect that CEO to then make all the changes. What happens in that case is the CEO may get convinced in their own coaching and then they come to their team and they want to make a change and everybody panics because their world is changing too much. Much better to work through these changes with the team at large on a quarterly basis, uh, all agree together that this is something we need to start doing differently. And then the team at large can drive that change throughout the company. Love it. That approach of working with the team instead of just working with, um, with the CEO or with one individual uh, member of the team. So going to number three, uh, culture mm -hmm. of execution. Um, as, as, as the audience knows, we, we apply a, um, a framework called Scaling Up and of course also our own proprietary uh, tools by Vern Arnish. And, um, and the rituals are a very strong component of, of uh, that methodology uh, and of the child principles as well. So having the dailies, the weeklies, the monthlies, the quarterlies, the annual meetings, the one-on-ones, the all-ends. Is there any specific ritual that you have seen uh, out of the box across your portfolio of clients? Any any special best practice around rituals and rhythms? And what are the, the main resistance that you face as a coach when, we, when you teach uh, these rituals to, uh, to, your, to your clients? Yeah, I would, I would say I don't necessarily um, see much resistance to the rhythms um, when we teach these to clients. I would say the, the one part where tech companies in particular don't seem to chime that much with is daily huddles. Exactly. Um, they think they think it's a little bit overdone, and that that a lot of that can be handled via 
uh, Slack or other channels that are all, always open. I would say um, I insist on daily huddles only when I feel there is a big trust issue in the team and that it basically would help them to build more personal relationships um, for a while. But um, I don't think it's that crucial in many uh, tech companies when they have other channels that are always open. Uh, I would say, however, are you not worried about playing Slack-a-mole? Like, you know, uh, um, <laughs> having all these Slack messages come in and having to answer to everything. So um, it is important, I think, that they are reachable, but it's also important that they have a place where to actually take decisions and not be drawn out of their work all the time by random messages. Um, I would say the, um, the rhythms that I've adapted here or there with certain companies that were growing really fast is um, sometimes we move from a quarterly to a half quarterly rhythm. Uh, sometimes they call it an eighthly rhythm, uh, which is, I think, new English words that we're making up as we go along. Uh, but essentially, you would have periods of six to seven weeks rather than 13 weeks. And you would essentially just set uh, the same rocks for that period of six to seven weeks. And that's something that I think relates a lot to what the guys at Basecamp were writing about. Six, seven weeks is just enough to make good progress, but it also forces you not to put uh, too much in that vision for what that rock could achieve. It has to remain pretty solid to the ground and therefore we stay iterative. The other thing that um, I often see companies do and that we've practiced a lot with is um, not to define the content of that rock in too much detail upfront. It's more uh, setting the objective, right? So almost the inspiring side of the OKR, if you will, saying, well, you know, this rock is about uh, more forceful penetration in the segment of this particular vertical example okay. right? right and um that does need of course some kind of a key result like okay how do we measure this exactly uh but the mistake i see many companies make is to define upfront and this will mean this marketing campaign and this will mean this sales training and this will mean this and this and this and this, mm -hmm. and this. so they load up on tasks and they forget that it's ultimately right. about improving on the key result so one thing I've really learned from the guys at Basecamp is to keep time and budget fixed, but to keep scope flexible. Because we all know you cannot keep all three fixed, right? So if there's one that has to give, it can be scope. And that makes for a more uh, compelling rhythm where everyone is trustful, like we are actually making progress. Even if we didn't reach everything that we set out to do with this rock, we still made progress because we saw an improvement on the key result. You can also then combine that much more easily with more of an agile mindset where instead of defining for a seven uh, week period in week one, we'll do this, week two, we do this, which is really waterfall. We would say, okay, let's just decide what are we going to do next week to make progress on each of these rocks. And next week, we'll talk about what we do then. Exactly. And, and you see also, you were talking about doing um, half uh, a quarter reviews. Um, do you see also teams and companies who do every four months instead of uh, every quarter? Uh, what do you think about those kind of uh, reviews? Uh, I haven't heard that yet, but it's possible, I guess. Um, I would say there's 
a bit of a natural human rhythm, I think, around uh, a quarterly rhythm. Like I yeah. almost always see people a little bit deflated at the end of a quarter. And then when you yeah. have the quarterly meeting, you can just pump them up again with new energy. Love it. Absolutely. So, you know, you can speed that up a little bit, uh, but I'm not sure if you could slow it down. I have uh, not personally experienced going a bit slower or skipping um, skipping sessions. And I haven't heard from any other coaches that do that. So maybe there is some natural barrier there uh, that, uh, you know, maybe it's, better, maybe it's better <laughs> in that case. If it's about the what the clients can afford, I would probably suggest that, you know, it's better to do uh, shorter sessions on a quarterly basis rather than longer exactly. sessions on a, <laughs> on a six monthly basis or so. Love it. So we got to the final question of the show and one of our favorites. So if you'd have the opportunity to meet your younger self and to meet Roland Seedlink uh, when you decided to dedicate uh, your time to advise and coach uh, founders and CEOs and leadership teams, what advice would you offer to your younger self at that time? Yeah, so I probably hate myself as I was 20 years ago. But anyway, maybe that goes for many of us. Um, <laughs> I, what, I, what I would, uh, I think I was a wise guy and I think I always wanted to be right. And, and uh, I did not understand yet the importance of the relationship versus being right. And so I think that's something I would focus on in teaching my own younger self or sometimes even other younger people like, it's less important to be right and more important to be kind. This is strongly related also to when you work with clients, meet clients where they are, understand their perspective first, what's their, their current situation, where do they think there is a problem? And you may see many, many other problems, but as a coach, it's not our job to impose problems that people don't have in their perception yet. It's our job to help people think through the problems they see help them solve it. And yes, sometimes we can advise there a little bit, but ultimately it's about them solving their own problems. So us asking the right questions, it's a much better way of working than us providing answers all the time. It's Roland, thanks so much for making the time to share your experience with us. We really appreciate to have you on the show. Okay, really appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. And to our community, we keep bringing you the best of the best so you can keep scaling during COVID times or even get stronger after COVID times. So keep, skill, keep scaling and see you soon.